the reason for this time period is that the Father in his good and sovereign wisdom has determined that he would undergo this process of gathering people to be citizens of his kingdom and children in his family and that would take place over a long period of time. So far it's been 2,000 years and we're told by Peter in our reading because of his patience. So we see a, a tension for Christians in the New Testament between having this confidence in Jesus' return but then seeking to live out their faith day to day as they wake up each morning and Jesus has not yet returned. At the end of the 40 day period after Jesus had risen from the dead before he ascended into heaven, Jesus spent time with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. They were eager to see all of the things that he taught uh, to come about straight away. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's a certain promise of Jesus' return in the Father's timing, not ours. But there's also something that has to be accomplished before that happens. The Gospel is to go out to the ends of the earth through the witness of the church so that people may be gathered in. See how that's reflected in our reading from uh, 2 Peter 3 this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible there, you might like to have, have it open to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we work through it. Peter wrote, he says, to remind them of the predictions of the holy prophets. That's what the disciples were asking about when they said, is the kingdom going to be restored? And, there's the, so there's the predictions of the Holy Prophet, but then there's also the commandments of our Lord and Saviour. That's the commission, to go out and proclaim the Gospel and to prepare people for that day when the King will come. Now Peter wrote his letter at the end of the 60s, a bit over 30 years since Jesus had come. And already for them it was beginning to feel like a long time. The first generation of people who had followed Jesus would have been getting old, many of them would have already died. Those who, who had an expectation that Jesus would come again within their lifetime Maybe they had started questioning that belief. Maybe they were wondering that they've got it wrong. Some, as we see in verses 3 and 4, were questioning whether Jesus himself had got it wrong. Whether Jesus was even going to return at all. For these people, the fact that Jesus had not yet come was a confirmation of their own worldview, 
the view which interestingly resembles the worldview of many people today. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This view says that the world, the universe, has always been the same in nature from the very beginning. Now it's not saying that nothing has ever changed. Obviously things have changed over the millennia of history. But it's a view that says that the promises of the Old Testament of the coming day, the day of reward when God would judge the nations of the whole earth. And those promises are reiterated in the New Testament. Well clearly they haven't yet come to pass. The world it seems just keeps picking over day after day. And so this claim that God is going to do a big cataclysmic transformation just begins to feel like this wishful thinking. As what people were saying then, today we not only face scepticism about what the Bible says, but we also have this modern scientific worldview that says all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning. This worldview says that the universe began for no apparent reason, probably with the Big Bang. And ever since, over millions of years, has been evolving according to the principles that we call the laws of nature or physics, and will keep doing that until eventually, in about 200 million years, everything will run out of energy in what scientists call the Big Freeze. In this view, humanity and life on Earth is just a minuscule blip in an otherwise lifeless universe. Astrophysicist Katie Mack recently wrote a book called The End of All Things says human beings are a species poised between an awareness of our ultimate insignificance and an ability to reach beyond our mundane lives into the void to try and solve the most fundamental mysteries of cosmos. So we're ultimately insignificant and nothing has any meaning in this worldview that says everything has just been continuing as it has from the beginning. Well, a biblical view of history is quite different because at the heart of the universe is not impersonal, non-relational laws of physics but the triune God of love. Everything that exists has been created by the Father by, through and for his beloved Son in the power and the perfect joy of the Holy Spirit. This means that the timeline of history isn't just a straight line going from Big Bang to Big Freeze, but it's the story of this God interacting directly and constantly with his creation in acts of judgment, acts of redemption, to bring everything to 
So Peter gives one example of this, this biblical worldview of the universe in verses 5 and 6. The flood. The world was formed by the word of God. So in other words, not, not as a meaningless, impersonal thing, but as something with purpose, the will of God expressed in his word. And the world before the flood was very different to the world after the flood. The flood was both an act of judgment upon the evil of humanity, but it was also an act of redemption, because the world was washed clean of its uncleanness caused by humanity's evil and given a brand new start. So the flood was a was one of these cataclysmic transformations of the world, but it was only a prefiguring of what is to come. In verse 7, fire, not water, will be the instrument that God will use to bring both judgment and redemption. So all these, these first century scoffers were different in many ways to 21st century sceptics, they had this view in common, a view of reality in which there is no God interacting with creation to accomplish his plan. As God's people, both back then and today, as we face scoffing, as we face objections from those who think that our beliefs are foolish and based on superstition or outdated religious ideas, the pressure is on us to believe them instead of Jesus' promise. The explanation that they give for why the world is the way it is and where the world is heading can often sound so reasonable and combined with all the sensationalism that we often see in the media, we can so easily start believing that the world is in our hands, not in his. But unless we act, then we do. That it's not only up to us, but it's actually within our own capabilities to eventually solve all the problems, the problems of violence and inequality and suffering that face us as the human race. Now sometimes Christians have heard by thinking that the promise of Jesus' return to make all things right means that we then ignore the problems in the world and do nothing in response to evil and suffering and injustice. That's not what the Bible teaches us. In fact it tells us that we should be concerned with mercy and justice and righteousness and with being good stewards of God's creation. However, our hope must not sit with what we think is our ability to solve these issues. Our hope must sit with the promise that God will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. So we must have this biblical worldview that informs us about the nature of creation that we're a part and, and how our God interacts with us. 
But we also need this worldview to shape our thinking about the timing of what God does. As I said, the Christians of Peter's letter were struggling to work out how it could have been all of 30 plus years and still Jesus hadn't returned. Well, even more today, 2,000 years, the promise of his return might seem harder to believe. Why, why has he waited so long? Well, the answer to that question is in verse 9. What appears to us to be slowness is actually patience. God is patient towards sinners, not bringing upon us the judgment we deserve the moment we sin, but holding back and instead calling us to turn to him for mercy. You see this from the very beginning. Adam was told that he would die the day that he ate from the tree. When he did eat, there was a spiritual death of sorts. He was banished from the presence of the Lord in Eden, but physically he didn't die until he was 930 years old. Every day he lived was an expression of God's mercy and patience, an opportunity every morning for him to turn in repentance and faith to God. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. But he takes delight when the wicked turn to him and live. So Jesus has returned because he's patient towards sinners. And not merely towards sinners in general. Note that Peter says it is his patience towards us. If you are in Christ, which is evidenced by your faith in him who died for you and rose again, then it's because he foreknew you. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to be justified by Christ and to be adopted as his child. This means he chose not only that you'd be saved, but he chose when you would be saved. Here, at the start of the 21st century, or the end of the 20th century, whenever you first put your faith in Jesus. Hypothetically speaking, if Jesus had returned in the lifetime of the very first Christians, we would not have been included in his kingdom or his family, because we wouldn't exist. But God doesn't deal with hypotheticals. Because of his plan of election, he's been patiently at work over the centuries, over hundreds of generations to ensure that you would be part of the new creation. Now all of this really is a prelude to talk about what it is that we're actually looking forward to. Peter tells us in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief. Now this is picking up in, on uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 
chapter 24, when he says, Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. The thief comes when we don't expect them. If a thief sent us an email in advance telling us what time they were going to break into our home, then we'd be there ready to stop them. But Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The unknown timing of Jesus' return should cause us to be always watching, always waiting, never becoming complacent. But the, the emphasis here is on the certainty of this day. This day will come, despite what the scholars and the sceptics say. Secondly, this day of the Lord will be when that statement, I am making all things new, will finally come to its full completion. It will be the day when the whole creation will be refined with fire. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now there's a couple of popular myths that this passage dispels. First myth is that the final destination for Christians is a place called heaven, a spiritual place in which we no longer have our physical bodies. But what we have to look forward to is not a spiritual existence but a solid reality in which body and spirit are integrated just as they are now. Isaiah 65, 17 said, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, which is really just a restatement of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is deliberately repeating himself to show us that our destination is just as solid as this creation because it will be this creation. So nowhere in the Bible is heaven spoken of as the final destination for Christians. Sometimes the word is used to speak of the dwelling place of God or the, the presence of God, the invisible spiritual realm. And that's why at times heaven is a, used as a roundabout way of referring to God himself. As in when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of heaven but more often than not, the word heaven or heaven simply refers to the sky above the earth. So the vision presented in the Bible isn't of us being taken out of earth to go and live in heaven, but of God himself, heaven itself, coming down to make his dwelling with his people. So there's no longer any divide between heaven as God's dwelling place and Earth. When God finished creating all things, we told him he saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. 
God calls the physical world very good because it's the perfect setting. It's been meticulously designed to be his dwelling place with humanity. And it's into this physical world that the Son has set, taking on our flesh and our bone. Jesus was made up of atoms and molecules, the same building blocks as us, the same building blocks as trees and rocks and stars. And the incarnation of the Son wasn't just a temporary arrangement. Jesus hasn't discarded his physicality now that he's returned to the Father. He still has a body that can eat and drink and feel. He's now permanently part of the creation. He's taken our physical creaturehood to himself so that he can give our creaturehood his own life and immortality. If we accept that, there's a second myth that we need to dispel and that is that the, the new heavens and earth is a brand new world that replaces this old one. But remember we've been seeing that biblically when God makes all things new, it means he's taken what he's already created and he renews it to make it lasting and permanent and immortal. So in, chapter, in verse 10, Peter paints this picture of the heavens, so the sky, and the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, being burned up. But what's the aim? The aim is that the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. This is the language not of obliteration, but of righteous judgment. It's a refining fire that burns up all evil, all injustice, and it purges creation. So this judgment will do in a complete way what the flood only did in a partial way. It won't be an annihilation, it'll be a transformation. So there'll be, there'll be a continuity between creation as we experience it now and how we experience it then. The way he designed the world in the beginning was very good. So that design will continue. We've probably all heard and maybe asked the question, we sometimes may hear from children, will I see my God in heaven? Will there be dogs there? Well, as much as dogs are part of God's good creation, we should in fact expect to see the whole range of God's creatures there. Peter will still be collecting beetles because there will still be beetles in the new creation. Now whether we'll meet our specific pets there, I think that's doubtful. We impose on our pets characteristics and personalities that are actually unique to human beings made in God's image. Now here in the fallen creation, animals can at times provide a degree of comfort and companionship that fills the gap caused by fractured and uh, limited human relationships. 
But in the new creation, our fellowship with God, our fellowship with one another, will be so full. It won't need those kinds of relationships with animals. Yet our fractured relationships, not only with us and with God, but with creation, will be healed. And so animals will be there and they'll be enjoyed and celebrated along with every part of creation. But it's not only the physical creation that will continue in a renewed state. In John's vision of the new heavens and earth in Revelation 21 and of the new Jerusalem, which is a picture of God dwelling with his people in the new creation, we're told, by its light, this is the new Jerusalem, by its light will the nations walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. See now in this new creation, this new city, there will still be kings, there will still be nations, and the glory and honour of the nations will be there. See there is a, a goodness and a beauty in human culture that exists even despite the fall, despite the fact that so much of God's good creation is taken by us and twisted and distorted and used for evil instead of good. Music, art, literature, science and learning, architecture, agriculture, the building of cities, the growing of gardens, the formation of societies and communities. In fact, Everything about human culture and society that is in some way an expression of the image of God won't be done away with because it's good. All of those things that are God's good gifts that we enjoy now in a limited way because of sin, in the new creation they will be an expression of the full glory of a redeemed humanity, living in the fullness of we're created to be and all done for the glory of God. Yet those things won't be our central focus. Our focus will be on God and the land. Because we'll no longer be looking as if through a dim window or with veiled faces. We will behold the full glory of God in the face of Jesus. We know the fullness and the power and the joy of the Holy Spirit because, as we've seen, God's law has been written on our hearts and we will know Him without anyone needing to tell us to know Him. Well, finally, we shouldn't overlook the solemn call that appears twice in this passage to strive to be living in light of what is to come. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in light of holiness and godliness? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
As I said at the start, something of the realities of the new heavens and earth have been brought to us now by the Holy Spirit. So we have the motivation to live holy and godly lives. Not so we can earn our worthiness to be part of the new creation, but because we've already been given the guarantee that we are part of it through Jesus' death and resurrection. Because we know this, because we have a small hope that does not disappoint, we're now set free to love. This sure hope gives us a reason not to bunker down and to seclude ourselves from the world and just wait for all the turmoil and all the difficulty to be over. But this hope enables us to start living today in light of what we will know when Jesus returns. So we can be salt and light in our situations, our communities, our neighbourhoods, our schools, our workplaces, our families. Our lives can be a walking, talking picture of the gospel that saved us and given us this sure hope. We can be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope we have. And we have the confidence that nothing we do now in the name of Jesus will ever be wasted. It will actually continue on. It will have eternal significance in the new creation. What a wonderful thing it is to be a child of the Father and to have such hope. That's why the cry of the church down through the ages has been, Amen, come. Lord Jesus. Is that the cry of your heart too? Are you so living for that day when he makes all things new that your life now is so changed and transformed that you are that light of Christ in the Lord around you? Let's pray.